about Nehemiah and it's, we left the story last week with the wall half built. Uh, the workers were facing opposition, they were working with a sword in one hand and a brick in the other hand and they were just getting on with the job. And that's kind of where we left it. This, this morning we're going to move forward in the story a bit and our kids out in Sunday school are going to be celebrating the completion of the wall. So they're having a little party out there which is very exciting. We're going to jump over the section where Nehemiah deals with injustice in the community. They had a problem where as they were walk, working on the wall, those who were wealthy amongst them were still charging interest to the poor. And so the poor were working on the wall and also having to pay back interest on money that they owned. And Nehemiah dealt with that. I think it's a great reminder that until we deal with injustice, we can't build anything great. But um, I'll let you read that on, in your own time. Instead, we're going to open at Nehemiah chapter 6. Um, it's very, we're going to be uh, following the story through well. So if, uh, if you want to follow along, Nehemiah chapter 6, it would be great. It will be up on the screen. <laughs> God willing. When the word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Gershom the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, some familiar names from last week here, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. Sambalat and Gershom sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages out on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messages to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported amongst the nations, and Gershom says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king, and even appoint prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a new king in Judah. Now, this report will go back to the king. So come, let's meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing what, like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to fight, frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. What a great prayer. Now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Delilah, the son of Methabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let's meet in the house of God inside the temple and let's close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they're coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realised that God had not sent him, but he had, been he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He'd been hired to intimidate me, so I would commit sin by doing this. Then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God, because of what they had done. Remember also the prophet Nadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. 
So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in, the, in 52 days. When our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realised that this work had been done with the help of our God. I couldn't help but read out the whole passage on that one this morning. Uh, I, um, I find it amazing how many of these situations still go on today. Good leaders don't listen to what people are saying. I, I don't know how many times I've heard that. People are saying that you are doing this. Good leaders don't listen to it. They don't go into a bunker and try and save their own skin. Instead, they look to the interests of the people and doing what is right. I, I love how um, Nehemiah in this recognises that it would be a sin for him to run away and not carry on and stand firm for the people. I love the quiet confidence of Nehemiah. He, he has this sense of confidence about the fact that God is with him, that God has called him and he will finish what he has begun. It's a great thing to be confident in. You can be confident in that. God is with you. He is at work and he will finish what he has begun. God will do what is right. He is just. Nehemiah almost relaxes into the confidence of that, that God will do what is right, both by him and by his opponents. I love the reversal that happens in this passage, that they are trying to intimidate Nehemiah and in the end, they are the ones who lose their self-confidence. Nehemiah is vindicated. It comes to pass. The wall is finished. Uh, I don't know how, how um, that passage strikes you, but there's only one verse given in this passage to the completion of the wall. It just says, so the wall was completed. That's it. In over seven weeks, just over seven weeks, Nehemiah has overcome internal despair, external opposition. He has built a wall and built up the self-respect and the name of the people of God amongst the surrounding nations. It's an incredible achievement, but it only gets one line. Uh, I, I, um, I love this story of Nehemiah. I hope you've been enjoying it as we've gone through Part of what I love about it is I want to be a part of a story like this. Um, I want to live a life like Nehemiah. I want to be like the people who are listed in this book, the 40 groups of people who all work together to build the wall. They're worthy of honour. They obeyed God. They work hard, worked hard. They overcame frustration and completed the work. So... That's what our kids are celebrating this morning out in Sunday school, that the people worked hard, God completed his work and the wall was finished. So they're at the celebration of the wall, but one of the things that strikes me is we're at chapter 6 right now, the wall was completed. It's not till chapter 12 in Nehemiah, half the book later, that we get to the celebration of the wall. There is six chapters between now and the celebration. And the reason for that goes back to the confidence that Nehemiah has. Nehemiah has this quiet confidence that God is just and he will do what is right. 
It's a great promise, but it's also a terrifying prospect for a people who for 70 years have been in exile, who have been living not as they were called to, as the people of God. God is just and he will do what is right. They know how short they've fallen. They know that they are on the wrong side of that equation as a people. They know that bricks and mortar and the walls, structures and institutions are just there to provide structure to something that should already exist. That the substance actually comes from your heart. So you can build the walls, but if your heart's not right, you're in big trouble. Walls aren't enough. One of the things that Nehemiah recognises, that Ezra, that this whole book is about, is about the fact that people need a renovation of their hearts. The walls are a symbol for what's actually needing to happen internally in people. They need to rebuild their lives on the foundation of God. In fact, the walls are a fairly straightforward task. It's really easy. You pick up that rock, you put it on that one. It's, it's straightforward. It's a harder thing to restore broken relationship with God, to restore holiness, to restore the heart. So, so let's read a little bit about how that happens. When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. It's a really long sermon. All of them are engaged. I, I like the sound of that. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right should, stood Matthiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah, and on his left were Pediah, Mishael, Malchajiah, Hashem, oh, this one always gets me, Hashbadadana, <laughs> Zechariah, and Meshalem. Thank you, Kerry. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Here we go. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shebathiah, Hadiah, Messiah, Kelita, Azariah, Jezebad, Hanan, Peliah, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so that people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep, for the people had been weeping 
as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Don't grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. How does renovation of the heart happen? Well, first of all, the people gather. They leave their homes and towns and come up to Jerusalem. Uh, Over in the book of Ezra, there is such a sense of urgency around this that in the middle of the winter, while it's still raining, in the middle of a rainstorm, the people gather together to hear the word of the Lord standing outside. There's an urgency, this sense of we need to be together and understand the law. Second, they listen. I don't think it's a coincidence that it talks about them listening attentively. They've got this hunger to know what is it that God requires of us? Who has he called us to be? And they respond with amen. Once Ezra's finished reading out the law, the the, um, Levites get people into small groups and they discuss and they explain what the law means so that they can understand how they're to live it out, how they're to put it into practice. That's why there's so much weeping in this book because these people realise how they're called to live and how they're actually living and they're cut to the heart about that. They recognise we have sinned and fallen way short. We've wandered away from God. It's also why they celebrate, ironically. (laughs) They celebrate because they now understand the word of God and who he has called them to be, that he is a good God, that he's a faithful God and he's called them to live life in all its fullness and he's given them away. So there's this grief, this is where we are. But there's this joy, this is who God has made us to be. So Ezra says, be still, don't grieve celebrate today the goodness of God and who he's called us to be. Third, they worship. How good is it that we can worship God even when we are not yet right with him? That we come to God not on the basis of who we are, but on the basis of who he is. Don't mourn today. God is faithful. Worship him with joy for his compassionate mercy that he has not given up on us. He has not given up on Israel. What he has done for these walls, he will do for this people. Worship him with joy. And finally, they repent. There was a day for joy and celebration, but a few days later, this is what we read. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israels gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. 
that separation is so important um, that they separated themselves out from the foreigners amongst them. Uh, I don't know that we like that idea of separation naturally, but um, as much as we like to convince ourselves, I think that um, there's always exceptions and uh, we should be as inclusive as possible. There are some issues, and this is what Israel's learned, there are some issues where failing to draw a line will inevitably lead you away from the good calling that you have. There are times when you just need to draw a line and say, this is not who we are. We will not live like this. We're called to be salt and light. We have no business with bitterness and darkness. We have no ish business with foreign gods. We won't be a part of them. We probably need to hear this warning as a people, particularly in the West, particularly as people who are welcoming. We're called to love and forgive and welcome. We're called to do it, though, without ever compromising with sin, without condoning um, bitterness and darkness, without tolerating selfishness and faithlessness. It's a real tension for the people of God one that we, we actually need to work really hard to hold. How can we be a people that invite others in with the hospitality and welcome of God, but do it without giving up on our holiness, without becoming so much like the people around us that we have nothing to offer of the life of God, without losing our distinctiveness, God calls us, be holy like I am holy. That's a huge calling. He calls us to be in the world, but not of the world. I don't know how that hits with you, that tension, that call. But it, it convicts me. I know that there are places where I let myself off the hook and think, oh, it's okay to be like this because it's being part of the culture. Actually, no. God calls us to be different. Israel separated itself from the influence of foreign gods and foreign values. And from this point on, this is a point in their history where idolatry no longer became an issue in Israel. From this point on, never again did they serve any foreign gods. They had their issues with legalism and with getting the balance wrong, but never again did they serve foreign gods. It grew out, grew out of this confession. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, when they gathered in repentance, they told the story of Israel and it was a story of God's faithfulness and their unworthy unfaithfulness. And it ends with this. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, leaders and priests and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or, eat or to the statutes you warned them to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today. In the land you gave your ancestors, our ancestors, 
so that they could eat its fruit and other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We're in great distress. Confession is this act of acknowledging this is who we are. This is who you are and who you've called us to be. We turn from this and we turn towards this. It's this act of acknowledging that we are in need, that we have not lived up to who God has called us to be, that we haven't responded to his goodness in kind. And the people gather together, they acknowledge this truth and they say, God, now what you've done for Jerusalem and its walls, do for the hearts of your people. Turn them back to you. Restore us in the love and faithfulness to you. The walls are a start. They're they're worthy of celebration, but they're like a promise. God will achieve what he plans for this nation. What a great encouragement that is. Confession is actually an act of faith. It says we are like this and we have done this, but but you have a plan and a purpose for us that is not to live this way. It's to live as your people, to be blessed by you, to have the life that only comes from you, to have the joy of knowing you and walking in your ways. There's this, um, there's this recognition in Nehemiah, and I love it, that um, spiritual and physical can't be separated from each other, that structure is really important, it's necessary, it's worthy of celebration, that before the spiritual renewal happens, they actually have to get some things sorted out. They have to put good leaders in place and they have to have the wall because otherwise they've got nothing to build upon. If the spiritual isn't expressed through the physical, then it's nothing but empty words. It's, it's a dream. I find that really encouraging that what we do and how we live and the things that we build matter to God. They are actually an act of worship. Be encouraged by that, particularly those of you in leadership, those of you who serve here, those of you who are building good things. That is an act of worship to God to build the kind of structure that he is on about. But on the flip side of that, The physical and organisational needs to work in partnership with the spiritual, otherwise it's just empty. It's idolatry. You can have the greatest looking thing in the world, but if it doesn't have a heart that says, God, we need you and we seek you, then it's broken. It's possible to create the world's best church without it being filled by the Spirit and expressing his power. Nehemiah is um, a great book about, again, that tension between the physical and the spiritual, that there needs to be a strong trellis and a healthy growing vine for there to be fruit. So they celebrate the physical, they celebrate the walls, but then for the next six chapters, it's about the spiritual healing of the people, the renovation of the heart. They don't even 
give a verse to the completion of the wall. It was half a verse. So they built the wall and then, bang, straight into dealing with the spiritual health. Uh, without leadership, it doesn't happen. Uh, Nehemiah has so many leadership lessons to teach us. But what I love about chapters 6 to 12 is that leadership isn't the point in those chapters. These six chapters are about Nehemiah actually just stepping out of the way. He doesn't come up much. He just steps out of the scene completely. What happens is that the people and God step into the centre. It's a recognition that the call that Nehemiah has received has to be something that each and every one of the community respond to. It's not about their leaders. It's about the people. The people as individuals must personally confess and commit. Leadership helps that to happen. It helps create environment where it happens. But then the point is that Nehemiah needs to get out the way and the people need to step in and personally respond to God, to commit to him, to confess their sins, to seek him and be led by him. They need to lead themselves. That's the challenge before us. So often, I think, we, we like to look to leaders to do relationship with God in our place. I think many of the problems that we face in the world is by trying to just choose a leader to do the things that we need to do personally then blame them if it doesn't go right or try and think that putting this person in place will mean that the world is right. No, it's actually a personal responsibility that we have. The people step in and confess, God, this is who we are and this is who we now commit ourselves to being. That needs to happen. There's a, there's a contradiction in to it as well. Um, I, I love how this confession finishes. It finishes with, you called us to be a great people and we are slaves. That's, that's the end of the, the confession. We're not where we should be yet. We're still slaves to Assyria, but right now we celebrate. We celebrate that if we seek you, if we cling on to you, you will finish your work in us. Even though we're slaves, you will make us your people. And so that's where Nehemiah gets to in the celebration. The celebration of a people committing their hearts to him, having seen him take a step and complete the walls, knowing that they, he is going to do the same for them because of that hope, because of that promise. It hasn't happened yet, but they're able to celebrate. Um, I read a quote this week. Um, it was about democracy. It said that democracy is not a possession, it's a process. And I love that idea. Holiness is not a possession. You, you can't achieve holiness. Well, I can't. Maybe a couple of you can because you're amazing. You don't achieve holiness. What you do is you enter into the process of holiness. It's this process of seeking God, confessing and trusting in him, 
putting one foot in front of the other and following after him and growing towards holiness. So, Nehemiah ends in celebration. Um, I'm just going to finish up by uh, reading out about the dedication of the wall. One of the things I want you to pay attention to, there are lots of names in this passage. Don't pay attention to how I say it, but pay attention to the fact that there are lots of names in this passage. What started out with Nehemiah now ends with a whole list of people. And um, pay attention to the fact that they walk around the walls. They walk around on the top of the walls singing praises to God. And as they walk, every single stone that they walk on or walk past was placed there by someone and was significant to someone. It's an incredible picture. They're walking around the walls and someone's like, I put that stone there. Or my dad put that stone there. Let's read. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps and lyres. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Nethophites, <laughs> from Beth Gilgal, and from the area of Geba, Asmaveth. For the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall towards the right, towards the Dung Gate. Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah followed them, along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshalem, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some of the priests with trumpets, and also Zechariah, son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Methaniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Asaph, and his associates, Shemaiah, Azaril, Melali, Gilali, Mai, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanai, with musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. Ezra, the teacher of the law, led the procession. At the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall and passed above the site of David's palace to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction, I followed them on top of the wall together with half of the people, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, over the gate of Ephraim, the Je- Jeshana gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hanel, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate. At the gate of the guard they stopped. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their place in the house of God. So did I together with half the officials, as well as the priests, Eliakim, Messiah, Minami, Micaiah, Elinai, Zechariah, Hananiah with their trumpets, and also Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzai, Jehohan, Malchajah, Elam, and Ezer. The choirs sung under the direction of uh, <laughs> Jezreel. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The sound, the women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard from far away. 
There's a psalm I'd like to read to you as well. Thanks for bearing with me as I read all those names. <sighs> Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will we- reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. I love the fact. Hello, kids. I love the fact that Nehemiah walked that same path half a year earlier with much weeping and sorrow amongst the broken charred stones and then he gets to do it again with a great crowd of people committed to God, worshipping and celebrating him and with restored walls. What an amazing journey from grief and confession to joy. So, I'm going to pray now. We're going to stop. What, I, what I'd like to do, though, is there is this progression that as we confess, God, this is who we are and where we have fallen short, that is where joy comes from. Joy comes from this understanding of we are here, yet you have called us here and you will complete your work in us. It's not until we confess and recognise our sin that we can have the joy of knowing that God is at work transforming that sin. His kingdom will come and his will will be done. His glory will fill the earth as the water fills the sea. We will sing his praises together. And my hope is that the sound of that will be heard from this place to far away. That we would actually be the kind of people who sing with the joy, not just of what God has done, but what he will still do. So, I'd invite you to please stand with me as we pray. (laughs) Lord God, we come before you now and we confess the broken things, the things that are still present within us. We confess the injustice in this world. We confess pride and suffering. Lord, we bring our country and the world to you in the midst of this pandemic and we We grieve with the knowledge that it is not your purpose and that you grieve with us. We bring the environment to you as well and we recognise that we have failed to fulfil our calling to be stewards